Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on page 66. And this page may look familiar because we learned it already. <laughs> the Ashrei, Ashrei prayer, which is taken directly from the book of Psalms. We've, at this point, finished the procedure of Torah reading, the significance of the prayers that's recited while reading the Torah. And now, once the Torah has been put back, we say Ashrei again. Right? Happy are those who dwell in your house. They will praise you forever. Happy is the people whose lot is thus. Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. We say this three times a day. The Talmud says that anybody who recites this prayer three times a day will enter the world of paradise. We'll go to Olam Haba as a share of the world to come. And the Talmud says, why? What is so unique about this? And that's why, by the way, it's split out throughout the day. We say it twice in the morning, once by Mincha, we say it three times daily. And the Talmud says, well, wait a minute. What is so unique about this prayer? That it needs to be recited thrice daily. And that if it is, there's such great reward. The Talmud says, well, it goes in the letter order of the Alephate. Each verse starts with another letter of the Alephate. Talmud says, well, there's other psalms and other prayers that do that as well. What's unique about this prayer? The Talmud answers, it has the verse, where we say, God, you open up your hand and satisfy the desire of every living being. Well, there's other verses throughout Psalms that imply that same message. So what's unique about this? So the Talmud says the answer is that it has both. It contains within it both, both messages. Like we explored when we recited this, when we studied this prayer last time, must have been about a year ago. Um, on the one hand, we praise God alphabetically because he's all-inclusive from Aleph to Taf. From A to Z, from beginning to end. There's no end to how we can praise him. Every letter represents a different praise. On the other hand, he opens up his hand and satisfies our desires. On the other hand, he's incredibly relevant. He's relevant to us. The Zohar asks an interesting question. The Zohar, when quoting this prayer, and just to give the historical context here, the, the Zohar is actually authored prior to the Talmud, implying that when the Talmud's telling us to recite this prayer thrice daily, it actually, that tradition existed earlier because the Zohar talks about it, and the Zohar existed a generation prior to the Talmud. Could be several hundred years prior to the Talmud, or at least a century prior to the Talmud. And here's the Zohar's question. Traditionally, you know, you know, traditionally these days and in contemporary times, it's standard, at least in America, to have three meals a day. And these things change from culture to culture. I was talking to a guy from once, he was from El Salvador. He said they have five meals a day. They don't get any work done. <laughs> I don't know how they have five, how they have time for five meals. Um, but that that's what we do. We have breakfast, lunch, dinner. Right? Breakfast is the iced coffee. Lunch is whatever it is. I'm kidding. Um, this again, this varies from culture to culture. 
traditionally in the times of the Talmud, and even pre-Talmud, just, just historically in ancient times, you would have two meals a day. You would have brunch, and you would have an early dinner. That's why on Shabbos, you're supposed to have a third meal. That's considered to be a big deal. Right? Shabbos, we have the Shalosh Su'udot. We have three meals on Shabbos. Like, what's the big deal? We always have three meals. And the answer is because in ancient times, they would always have two meals. On Shabbos, you're supposed to have a third meal. Cram it in. Right? And that third meal takes place after Mincha, toward the afternoon. Very special time. So here's the Zohar's question. In the um, prayer, the Ashrei prayer, right, the crux of it, the most important line is the line that starts with pay, where it says, Poteach et yadecha. Um, on the English, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine lines from the bottom. Do you see it? Nine lines from the bottom of the page in the English. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. That's supposed to be recited with extra intent, with extra kavana, with extra focus. And the Zohar's question is, well, we're praying to God for food. We're praying for God for sustenance. We're praying that God open up his hand. Um, but, and by the way, look at the line before. It also has a similar theme. I'm going to move up. One more line from the eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food at the proper time. In this prayer, we're saying that we rely on God to sustain us. We know that our sustenance doesn't come from purely from employment. Not that we, you know, we have to be responsible and, and have a vocation and have a plan, but ultimately it's God who blesses us. We know that. We're praying to God, sustain us. It would make sense to recite this twice a day. And on Shabbos, recite it three times a day, perhaps, because on Shabbos, you're supposed to have three meals. But during the week, we should recite this twice a day because you're having two meals. Why three times? This is the question the Zohar asks. And I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, the, the answer is not that earth-shattering. It's quite logistical. The Zohar says that the first time it, we've recited it, but you'll see where I'm getting to in a second, though. just bear with me. The first time we've recited it, which was earlier on page 31, the bottom of page 31, it was just a praise. It was in context of praising God. It wasn't a request. At this point, when we recite it, it's a request. The second time, the third time we're going to recite Ashri later on, it's a request. The first time we said it, though, it was just a praise. We were just praising God routinely, if you will. We weren't we weren't intending on really asking for anything yet. Because, again, remember the structure of the prayer. The essence of prayer is the Shema and the Amidah. The Shema declaring that God is one. The Amidah is me um, submitting and giving myself over to that oneness, to that truth. I'm bowing down. That's the essence of prayer. But to dive into that, if we just dive into that, we're not going to experience that properly. We have to work our way through there. 
So there's all the preliminary stuff to help us build up. So the ashray was just part of the, the first ashray was just part of the preliminary working our way in. Working our way into this relationship. But now, at this point, the second and third time it's recited, we actually meet it. We're actually asking God, in the depths of our heart, sustain us. Now, why is this relevant? <laughs> my microphone is off the whole time. Is my microphone on now? Can you hear me a little better? Is it the same? Sounds the same? Okay. I have a magic microphone or it's not working. Okay, it's all good. Hold on one second. Sorry for those. Okay, there we go. Can you hear me now? There we go. <laughs> Thought it was on. Should we redo this whole thing? No, I'm kidding. Um, okay. What? Well, all good. Okay. So why why am I getting into this? Why is this relevant? This answer is why. There's two questions here. Why do we need to say Ashray three times? Okay, we established this already. But what I would like to us to understand today, and you'll see how relevant this is to our personal lives. This is not just philosophical. Why are we reciting Ashray now here at this point in the prayer service? Okay, you could tell me why we have to recite it three times, but why now? This is the first time where we're actually meaning it in a way where we're asking God for physical sustenance. We're not just praising him. And that is a powerful message. Up until now, our relationship with God was very spiritual. We had the preliminary prayers recognizing God as a creator. The blessings that precede the Shema, where we recognized how the angels praise God from their perspective. The Shema, where we declare that he is totally one. The Amida, where we submit to his oneness and realize our dependence on him. The Tachnun, where we're totally vulnerable with God. Taking out the Torah, where we learn how these all of this leads to us appreciating his values much better. All of this has been spiritual this whole time. And a relationship with God can't just remain spiritual. It has to leave a physical, real physical impact. A real physical impact. That's why we say in these lines, the eyes of all look expectantly to you. You give them their food at the proper time. You open up your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. We're essentially saying, God, we want real results, not just spiritual enlightenment. Prayer is a spiritual experience, but it can't just stay that way. It has to have a physical impact on the world, a physical impact on ourselves. Very, very important. You know where else you see this, by the way, throughout the sitter? In the way, way, way beginning of the sitter. I'm going to have us flip back. All the way to page, page five. There's a method to the madness here. Going back about 
give or take 900 years ago, there was a Talmudic commentary known as the Rashba, Rabbi Shlomo ben Adaret. He was a sage in the Sephardic communities. And here's what he said. He said something fascinating. The Siddur starts off, again, spiritual. Our spiritual connection, our soul connection with God. What is the first thing we say? Moda'ani. Thank you, God, for returning to me my soul. Right? Then we wash our hands. Natilat yadayim. Because our soul came back. Right? There's a strong focus on the soul. Then what prayer do we recite? We recite the Asher Yatsar prayer which is the second to last paragraph on the page, where we thank God for being healthy, for having a functioning body. So first, we recognize our soul. We then recognize and thank God for the body. The relationship with God is not just spiritual. The relationship with God has to be physical. And that's exactly what we're saying now, going back to page 66. Up until now, our relationship had been spiritual, had been deep, had been enlightening. But is it something we can take home with us? Something we can write home about? Is it something we can take with us throughout the day? That's the ashray. In fact, take a look at the first line of the ashray. Happy are those who dwell in your house. They will yet praise you forever. If God is if we're dwelling in God's house, if we're with God, it's going to endure. But if it's just spiritual, it it might not necessarily endure. If we you can walk away from prayer being very inspired, but that doesn't mean anything's really going to change. But if there's real physical results from our prayers. We know the relationship is real. We know the relationship is deep. And this is a theme that is not just... This is a general theme throughout Judaism. And general prayer, by the way, is supposed to be recited verbally, not just mentally. There has to be a real physical impact. In general, Judaism is not just spiritual, but most mitzvahs require physical engagement. Actually doing something. There's an interesting debate in the Talmud. Um, bit of an uncanny debate, if you will. I don't know if that's the right expression, but you'll soon see what I mean. <laughs> the, so let me take a step back. Because Judaism is not just spiritual, it's physical. The Torah um, gives guidelines for every area in life. The Torah doesn't just guide us how in how to pray or how to, you know, tells us how to be good people. You have laws within the Torah about conduct in the restroom. The Torah that you can't even bring into the restroom is telling you how to conduct yourself in the restroom. <laughs> Why? Because the relationship with God is so deep, so meaningful. It's not just when we're in the synagogue. It's not just spiritual. It's physical. It's something we take home with us. Real, deep, meaningful relationships, our most important relationships, are relevant all the time. So uh, uh, an employee-employer relationship is relevant nine to five. 
right? At some point, you should have vacation days. You should be able to shut off your phone. You should, right? A marriage, though, doesn't have hours to it. Why doesn't a marriage have hours to it? It's part of who you are. It's not just something you've signed up for. It's not just something you're doing. It's part of who you are. Our relationship with God is part of who we are. It should last well beyond prayer. Well beyond prayer. And that's why the Talmud and, and Jewish law dictates all sorts of guidelines in how to connect to God, not only in the spiritual context, but even in our everyday lives, how to eat, how to sleep, how to conduct ourselves in the restroom. With this background, I'll tell you an interesting debate in the Talmud. And, and understand that in the days of, in ancient days, they did not have the same sanitary innovations that we now have these days, sanitary luxuries. What we, what we considered what we can take for granted is, is a luxury, at least back then, right? And I'm talking specifically about toilet paper. I'm sorry to be graphic here, but toilet paper didn't exist in the days of the Talmud. Didn't exist in ancient days. What did they used to use? Anybody know? They used to use stones, stick, you know, they used to use rocks. Which means, I, I, and again, I'm sorry for to be graphic, but I have a point here. I'm not just trying to gross you out. Hopefully you ate dinner already. <laughs> There's a method to my madness. Just trust me. Just hold on. <laughs> Inevitably, given the sanitary innovation, and again, this was just a global normalcy, given the sanitary standards you're not going to be as clean as we would be these days. Just the way it is. So the Talmud says, and brings a debate, where somebody exited the restroom and was not as clean as they hoped they would be. Again, please apologize. I apologize. We accept my apology here, but but this is there is an important point here. Somebody exits the restroom and they're not as clean as they hoped they would have been. Can they recite the Shema? Can they pray? Okay, if you say yes, raise your hand. You're not as clean as you should be. Can you pray? If you say yes, raise your hand. Okay, if you say no, raise your hand. Okay, the answer is, again, this is debated in Tractate Brachos, page 25. And the answer is it's a debate between two sages. The sage Rav Huna and the sage Rav Chista. Rav Huna says, you're not as clean as you'd like to be. You could still recite the Shema. That's not to say that you shouldn't be clean. Ideally, you should clean yourself as good as possible. But if you didn't, your prayers are still valid. Rav Chista says, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. You got to be very, very clean. Otherwise, you can't pray. And they each bring a biblical verse to support their teachings. And this is where I'm getting it. Rav Huna, who maintains that if you're not fully clean, at the end of the day, it's still fine. He brings a verse that says, Kol haneshama tahalel ya. Every soul praises God. Your body's dirty, but your soul is clean. Your soul is the one praising God. That's good enough. 
right? It's a soul connection. Okay, my body's not clean, but my soul, my soul's not dirty. My soul is still beautiful and pure. Rav Chista says, mm -mm. you forgot another verse in the Bible where it says, Kol atzmotai tomarna ka. My entire being and essence, my whole self, my bones. Praise God. In other words, the debate whether you can praise God when you're not fully clean or not is a question of whether you are praising God just with your soul or with your body as well. And what is the conclusion? In practice, you got to have, especially these days where we have the ability to do so, you have to have a clean body. Why? Because we're praying to God, not just with our soul, but with our body. A relationship, a real deep, meaningful relationship requires full presence. Spiritual presence, as well as physical presence. Both. And that's why prayers need to be articulated verbally and require kavana, spiritual and physical, together. A marriage, you can't have a marriage that's over Zoom, you know? <laughs> can't just be spiritual. A marriage has to be physical. It needs to be physical. Our relationship with God needs to be physical. And that's why after the Amida, after finishing this spiritual connection, we say, God, let's show, show us the physical, practical implication over here. Sustain us. Feed us. And you see this theme, by the way, both in the first as well as the last verse sentence in the ashray. Take a look on page 66. Um, third line where it says a psalm of praise by David. Do you see that? A psalm of praise by David. I will exalt you, my God, the king, and bless your name forever. I'm going to read that in Hebrew because there's something I want to show you. And I think I, I think I'll be able to make the point more clearly through the Hebrew. Second line, end of the send, end of the line, where it says Tehila le David. Do you see that? Tehila le David, a praise by David, or a psalm of praise by David. Aromimcha Elohai Hamelech. Aromimcha, I will exalt you, my God, the King. My God, you are exalted. You're in heaven. You're spiritual. You're lofty. You're above. And I bless your name, forever and ever. What is the word? Why, again, why does God need us to bless him? He needs us to bless him. What kind of God needs us to bless him? Why would I serve that God? And the answer is the word bless has another meaning. Because of the word brecha, which means to channel. Yes, God, you are exalted. You're above. You're a king. You're in heaven. You're spiritual. I will channel your name. Le'olam. What does Le'olam mean? They translated it as forever. What else does Le'olam mean? World. Olam means world. I'm channeling God into this world. Yes, God is exalted. Yes, God is lofty. 
And yes, I'm going to appreciate and connect to how great he is. I'm going to channel him in this world. The relationship is going to have a physical impact. You see this in the Torah uh, several several portions ago. Where God appears to Abraham, and the Torah tells us the geographical location of where this appearance took place. Right? Hashem appeared to Abraham in Elone Mamre. In the plains of Mamre. And we know that God appears to Moses in Midian in the burning bush. We know that God appeared to Jonah. right? We know that God appears to different people in different places. But nowhere in the Torah other than in this instance does it tell us the precise geographical location. To, you know, that specifically. Whose property it was. God appears to Abraham on this guy's lot. <laughs> This longitude and this latitude doesn't say that anywhere else in the Torah. Why so specific? Well, why did God appear to Abraham? He circumcised himself. He did a mitzvah. And the commentaries point out when you do a mitzvah, that does that leaves an impact on the location that you do that mitzvah. The physical location, the geographical location is mentioned. Because when you do a mitzvah and you connect to God, it affects the geography. It's not just spiritual. It's not just heavenly points with God. It's not just a deeper relationship with God. You're bringing God's presence into this world. Take a look on the last line of 66. In, I'll read it again in the English, and then we'll we'll uh, scroll over to the Hebrew. Second, so second to last line, where it says, "And we," by the period toward the end of the line, and we will bless the Lord from now to eternity. Praise the Lord. Again, same question: Why does God need us to bless Him? So let's look at it in the Hebrew. Va'anachnu and we, nevarech, which means we'll bless. It could also mean we'll channel. We will channel God. Me'ata from now. The Ad Olam. Ad Olam is translated literally as forever, but what else can Ad Olam mean? Until the world. We're going to channel God into this world. This is an incredible paradigm shift in how we view prayer. Because on the one hand, prayer is not just about getting what you want. It is about the relationship. Right, it, it can't just fully be outcome based, because that's not a good relationship. When relationships are outcome based, they become very self centered. Right? If a marriage is only about what I get and what I experience, you know that's that's a that's a problem. We uh, we had our JLI class. A little spoiler alert. I'm sorry for some of you. We had a JLI class last night in person. And we were talking about marriage. I won't spoil too much. We were talking about marriage. One of the attendees in person is a lawyer. He's a divorce lawyer. And he says, so many of his clients, you know, he talks to them and they're just, it's all about, it's all about what, uh, it's just, again, this is anecdotal. This is not, um, but he's saying that it's just about them. 
about what they can get. And that's why they're seeing him. So I made the joke. I said, whoever I don't succeed with, they send them, I send them off to him. You know, we have a deal. <laughs> I knew I knew a doctor and his son-in-law was in the coffin business. So anybody that the doctor failed with, he would just ship him off to the son-in-law. <laughs> so I said, anybody who I don't succeed with, I'll send them off to you. Um, so on the, on the one hand, a relationship can't be outcome-based, can't be focused on the outcome because then it's not about the relationship. On the other hand, when there is a physical outcome, the relationship is solid. So on the one hand, it can't be about what I get from God. But when I do have an experience from God, from God sustaining me, the relationship has a physical impact. The relationship is grounded in our physical reality. The relationship has continuity to it. It's a, it, it's interesting, by the way, to note that the word forever, le'olam, and the word world, le'olam, are the same. Because when it's physical, when it's worldly, it endures. It lasts. I'll, uh, I'll conclude here with a story. It was uh, about 250 years ago in the shul of the Alter Rebbe, the shul of Rabbi Shneur Zalman al -Yadi. It was Rosh Hashanah. And apparently it was an intense Rosh Hashanah. You know, sometimes you feel the energy of the davening. You just feel like there's there's something going on. You don't you don't know why. But daven, you're, you're, the davening is intense. The davening is real. The davening is inspiring. Comes Motzei Rosh Hashanah, the end of Rosh Hashanah, and Rabbi Shneur Zaman Liadi is talking with his son, with Rabbi uh, Rabbi Dovber of Lubavitch, or not of Lubavitch, but uh, known as the Mitzler Rebbe, and he says to him, "What did you pray with?" What carried you through davening? What carried you through the prayers on this on this incredible energetic day? And he went on to describe the mystical kavana, the mystical intentions and and understandings that that he envisioned while davening. Then he returns the question: What carried you through davening? He says the lectern, the stender, the wooden stender. Huh? I'm telling you about my mystical appreciation of what's going on in, in the heavens. And that's what carried me through davening. What carried you through davening is the stender, the lectern. You don't need to be the Alter Rebbe. You don't need to be Rabbi Shinar Zaman Liadi, the author of the Tanya, the, the founder of Chabad. You don't need to be you to pray with a lectern. Anybody could do that. <laughs> Explain yourself. What's going on? He says, what carried me through davening was knowing the impact of my davening. The impact that I'm having on this physical world. Just like when um just like when Avraham had his appearance to God, it was we know the specific geographical location, there was a physical impact. I know my davening has a physical impact on this world, and that carried me through. I know my relationship with God is not just spiritual, but it has a physical, has physical meaning to it. The relationship is wholesome and complete. By the way, and I'll just conclude with this. 
there's a there's a tradition that Kabbalists cite where people would take the lectern they would use to daven with or study Torah with, the wooden lectern, and they would use that as wood for their coffin when the time came. So that when it's time to go on to the next world, it serves as an advocate for them in the next world. Right? It absorbed all of the Torah study. It absorbed all of the davening and all the prayers. The physical, the spiritual connection to God was physically grounded in this world. And now it serves as an advocate for them in the next world. What we learn from the ashray, post-Amida and post-spiritual you know, spiritual relationship, is that asking God for things, which is what the ashray, the crux of the ashray, is the most beautiful way to ground our relationship with God. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it.